0: Hello and welcome to episode 110 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret, never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And it's a different kind of episode this week with a recording taken from the Q&A with Rick Buckler in August 2022 with an event at St. Peter's Brighton for the This is the Modern World exhibition. Consider it a sequel to episode 42, if you like. As you'll know, Rick was one third of the powerhouse sound of the jam, along with Paul Weller and Bruce Foxton. So have a listen. Stick around for the end as well. Your shout outs on the podcast coming up too. Let's get into it. Rick Buckler recorded live in St. Peter's, Brighton. It's a real honour to be here tonight. This is an amazing exhibition. If you haven't had yet had the chance to wander around, look at the memorabilia. It's an incredible exhibition and fair play to the team who've put it together. There's some amazing stuff in there. So do check it out during the run as well. Some incredible events here too. This one is really, really a very, very special one and a real honour to host this, okay? So your chance to quiz our guests coming up. Please welcome drummer for the best band in the We're in a Church, so I can't say that word. World, the jam, Rick Buckler. Good evening. How does it feel when you see that documentary and you look back on your life? Like 45, 40 years ago. How does that feel looking back at all that?
1: Well, I must admit, I've only seen that once. When it first came out, I thought I'd have a look at it, just see how it's... Yeah, I thought they'd done a good job on it, actually. It is a bit weird, especially when you think it's like 40 years since the band split and there's still interest in the band. It's very flattering, really. I mean, we didn't think at the time... What we were doing was going to have that sort of longevity. I mean, it was we were doing it obviously for ourselves because we wanted to be in a band and we wanted to be successful, and it was as simple as that. So, yeah, to see something like that even made was something else,
0: certainly. Yeah. Now we are in Brighton. We're here for the exhibition. This is the Modern World, and wandering around, there's a lot of your memorabilia. I mean, we talk about the Weller family being magpies. You kept a lot of stuff as well, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I think probably everybody did. I mean, I know Bruce would have done as well. I mean, I'm very proud of of everything that happened during that day. I mean, I've got I've got two kids, so I had to save two of everything and put it away in boxes. I mean, I, I don't know whether they want it or, or whatever, but they're going to get it anyway. So, um, yeah, I've got a loft full of stuff, all the releases and the books and this, that and the other. It's weird. I, I mean, I don't get it out and I don't look at it and I don't listen to jam stuff very much. Well, I say very much. I mean, it always seems to be on the radio, but um, it was a very big part of, our, of all three of our lives. And obviously everything that, that happened afterwards is because of the jam. So I think, personally speaking, I've got a lot to thank The Jam for. You know, I know we put a lot of work into it. And it's nice to think that it paid off in in more ways than um, we thought it would do at the time.
0: In the documentary, Paul talks about this being 10 years of his life when Steve and he started out. And then I think it would have been eight years of your life with The Jam, six years. No, no, no. Was it longer than that? I was with
1: The Jam from the beginning with... um, from like when we started with, with the name and everything. So it started obviously with me, Paul and Steve Brooks as a band. I mean,
0: but wasn't there this Neil Harris guy? He was mentioned in the documentary. Did you kick yeah, but, him out? What happened to him?
1: Yeah, but he only did about one or two shows. Uh, and he was like, they'd call upon him when they thought they had some sort of gig to do. But I mean, he often, uh, he was going to go on holiday or he just wasn't, you know, available. And I think he was very much into sort of jazz drumming. So he didn't really. Do you know what I mean? It's just, you have to have a drummer to make it a proper band. I don't disagree with that at all. But, you know, it's, I think it was a matter of, I don't think he really, he didn't really fit in with what was, what we were wanting to do. Um, so when I got asked if I would do, um, what seemed then was like a big show at the Woking Youth Club the Shearwater Youth Club I said well yeah I'll do it and Paul just gave me a load of Chuck Berry records it's only 12 bars so it wasn't difficult to learn all this stuff I mean it, w- it wouldn't be the jam that you would recognise at all I mean it's all covers no original material whatsoever and I think after that first show I think we were bitten by the bug. And it's all right, this is what we want to do. And we pursued it. And then we we got more and more shows. And then there was another guy, Dave Waller, who came on board. Because we always try to be a four-piece. I mean, Dave Waller fell by the wayside. So did Steve. Bruce came along a bit later on. He came along on rhythm guitar. Because Paul was the bass player originally. Because he had a Hofner violin bass, just like Paul McCartney. I heard that Bruce
0: initially wasn't that keen on swapping over, though, right?
1: No. I mean, we we asked Bruce to join before. And he did not like the stuff that we were doing, so he turned us down. We couldn't keep four members together for some reason or other. People were dropping out and what have you. And I think when Steve left, Paul had to take on lead vocals and play bass. And he wasn't comfortable with that. He wasn't comfortable with playing bass and singing. He said, well, I'm going to play rhythm guitar and sing because I can do that. And so he said to Bruce, well, if you want to stay in the band, you are now the bass player officially, which actually turned out to be a real plus, because if you listen to Bruce's playing, he plays bass like a rhythm guitarist. So he's filling up this, this section of not only bass, but rhythm as well. So me and him tied in as the rhythm section in, in more ways than one, which actually turned out to be a benefit. I mean, we didn't think about it too much at the time, and we were still after trying to find a fourth member. You know, we tried a keyboard player and all sorts. But I think by that time, a couple of years had gone by, we were so musically bound together in the way that we did things, it would have been difficult for a fourth member to come in. So there we were sort of eventually stuck as as a three-piece, working
0: very, very hard to sound like four-piece. And that, I think that's what created the sound that we had. You mentioned about these covers and these Chuck Berry covers, and you were playing like the local working men clubs, all that kind of thing. Was there a point at which you thought, actually, now we sound good? Because presumably at the beginning... Nobody's, okay, no, we were, always, we were always rubbish. And, um, <laughs> but at the beginning, when you pick up an instrument, you're crapping it, right? Okay. We all are. So there must have been a period... But you just worked and worked and worked, put in the hours. There must have been a period before you got signed that you thought, no? <laughs> no, I think that was the thing. I mean, we, we never thought
1: that... Uh, There was always room for improvement. I think that was that was the thing where we always worked for. And even when we got signed, we still felt that we had to prove ourselves either to the record company to keep us signed, because you know once you've got signed, that's that doesn't mean you're signed for the rest of your life. You still got to sell records. You still got to perform. You still got to go out on the road. You still actually have to come up with the goods. I think that made us work really, really hard to you know that we constantly felt that we had to prove ourselves so we never let let that go we never rested on our laurels for one moment if you look at those dates i mean if you look at all the dates that we played from 1977 right the way through to the end it's pretty much full-on and if there's any caps at all we're in the studio or we're doing something press-wise or traveling there's very little time off i mean we we almost put ourselves under Enormous pressure to you know we want to we we're here and we're going to bloody well stay here you know and I think that was the feeling that we we had and um you know I think it just drove us on to work harder and to try better at their songs you know and the arrangements and everything if anybody gave us you know here's some here's a list of gigs yeah we do them, no problem and never said no, never said a no to anything never said no to anything and we just just worked our asses off for, well, for as long as I mean in a way it was a bit of a shame because I think. There was nobody actually turned around to us and said, Look, I think you can, I think you can ease up a little now. Nobody actually said that we could actually start calling the shots a little bit more because there was little, little control. We were pretty much given the work by the record companies and we just did it. I mean, we just didn't question it. We loved what we were doing. We loved being on the road touring and recording. And so, yeah, we just sort of sucked it up. But I think in the end, it, It had a detrimental effect, or it started to, let's put it that way.
0: I've seen all three of you, so you, Paul and Bruce, talking about that joy of the beginning. And so many of you talk about that pre-record deal of like the excitement and you're building something together. There's obviously that bit where it switches from you're playing Woking, and we should talk about some of the places in Woking you play, because you're like 15, 16-year-old kids playing what sounds like a gangster's, like Jabba the Hutt's Gangster Palace, for goodness sake. Was it Michael's? (laughs) Yeah, Michael's,
1: yeah, Michael's Club. I mean, that was that became a residency for us on a Friday night, but it was one of them drinking holes. I mean, back in the day, pubs were starting to shut at 10.30. Anybody who wanted to carry on drinking would go knocking on the door of Michael's Club, and it was one of them places where the door was on the street with a little square hole in it, (laughs) and you knocked on the door, and then somebody would peep at you and see whether they'd let you in or not, and then you would fly to stairs up to the top, and there'd be a bouncer there. To get in, it was supposed to be a club, so you had to... You had to rent a tie off this guy. That was a fiver. (laughs) I had a black bin bag full of ties. Um, And then they let you into this club. And we were the band and stuff on a Friday night. We played there every Friday night. It was one of them places, if you went there during the day, you really wouldn't want, We wouldn't want to be there. It didn't, it wasn't good at all. But at night, it looked great, you know what (laughs) what I mean? Because all the lights were out. And it was always packed with people drinking and dancing and and what
0: have you. Um, It was a proper seedy little club. All right. So it switches from that fairly quickly from what I can work out to the kind of... And we'll talk about the, the world of punk and how whether the jam were punk or not punk, mod or not mod. But from this... I mean, Paul talks in the documentary about, you know, 50 people at this residency in London at the, at the Cow, was it the Red Cow? And then a week later, 100 people, and then suddenly it's around the block, and boom, you've taken off. That must have been massively exciting. Well, it was, but... You know, we were getting very, very
1: frustrated. We were sending tapes to the record companies to, you know, sign us, sign us. And no, and we get some really silly letters back from them saying, you know, no, we don't think you're the sort of thing that, um, we want to sign. I mean, this is all pre punk, if you like, or, um, but the, the pub rock scene in London was growing. You know, there was, there was bands that were playing, you know, Dr. Feelgood were already there. Um, stranglers were already there. I think they were called the Guildford Stranglers or something at the time. So there was a, there was a healthy live thing in London. And we'd see all this going on in Melody Maker and Sounds and what have you. We decided that we were going to give up our luxurious life with five quid a night in Woking and, and go to London and play for nothing. Cause these clubs didn't pay you anything at all, yeah. really. You know, they had so many bands that wanted to play, you know, in the Nashville rooms or the Hundred Club or the especially the Marquis. Uh, that they didn't need to pay anybody really any, any dosh at all. So it was a real leap of faith to, to drive into London, play these places and to try and win an audience because we were, we wanted an audience of our own age. When you played the clubs, it was, people were there because they liked to have a drink and the booze was cheap. They didn't care who, who was on. And because we did a lot of covers, that meant that most of the time we were working every Friday night, every Saturday night, sometimes Sundays. So, after about three, four years, we decided, look, we've
0: had enough of this. Because we were just going round and round the same clubs around Surrey and Woking. Well, there's only so many times you can have your family up dancing before at the beginning of gigs and stuff to get it all kicked off as well. Oh, yeah, exactly.
1: And um, So, yeah, I mean, it was just lovely to get out of those places and to start playing to. And we discovered the pub scene, you know, the, the pub rock scene in London. But it was like extra pressure on us again because we started to see how good some of the other bands were. You know, there was Joe Strummer with his 101ers that were there, you know, pre Clash days. And we sort of fitted in because we, we played fast rock and roll. Most of a lot of covers again, but we started to get our own sort of, uh, writing our own material by that time. So it was, it was just fabulous. And then obviously that particular scene started to take off. Punk emerged in some of the clubs like the Roxy and, and what have you. And we sort of became part of it but not part of it, if you know what I mean. We had audiences that were going to all of the shows. They go to the damned and then they come and see us. You know what I mean? So the audience was very mixed between skinheads and mods and punks and, and what have you. But the, the the whole thing about it was that it was a younger audience and it was always a lively, very lively show.
0: And it felt like at that time, young people suddenly had something that was theirs. That This music scene was something. The amount of kids coming to your gigs, 14, 15-year-olds, it was... Because it was their music, wasn't it? Well,
1: it was. I mean, they were—they were officially pub gigs, so you weren't supposed to be under eighteen. <laughs> right. But they didn't seem that worried at the time. Uh, you know, you, you people could still get in and do these shows. It was exciting because it gained the attention of the record companies because these clubs were full all the time. It doesn't matter who the band was. They, you know, there was a there was a real upsurge of, of some of the bands was just really fantastic. You know, and we—I suppose—in a way, we 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 hit London at the right time to be part of that. Because the record companies wouldn't come out of London if you wanted to be noticed. You had to go to London. Then there started to be this buzz about who was going to get signed. You know, and and the punk scene started to, especially the punk bands. They grabbed the headlines. They grabbed all of the the newspaper stuff and and got a lot of media attention, which. Bought a lot of attention onto what else was going on in London. So these clubs were full every, every weekend. And, um, I think we started to gain our own fans because of that. And like, well, once the record companies decided that they should check this out and see what's, uh, see what's going, you know, because that's what they go by. They haven't got a crystal ball. If they start seeing everybody getting into this stuff and getting into the bands, they feel almost obliged. We want some of it as well. So, they...
0: so who's out there? Who are we going to sign up? Now, this very nearly didn't happen. So there are a few things. Am I right in thinking you were, you were one of the more accident-prone members of the crew, one of the bands. Me? Yeah, was that not right? <laughs> it was in his own book, folks. Tell me about the flyposting story. Can you remember this? So there's, there's Bruce and Paul in one of the cars, <laughs> and you and John in the other car. Yeah. And this could have been the end of Rick. So <laughs> tell me what happened here.
1: Well, after I went through the red light or before I went through the red light? <laughs> oh, I didn't know about the red light. <laughs> well, after the red, I went through the red light, um, we were going through an underpass. Oh, it was my first car, a little mini We'd been out all night sticking up posters to advertise the gigs we we're in. We were doing around London, you know, bucket of paste, big brush, pile of posters. And, um, we just simply wrote the date on the bottom and then slapped these things on the wall. Bruce had a, I think he was, he had a Cortina. So Paul and Bruce were in the car in front. They were going down the A3 and the A3 is full of underpasses, isn't it? If you ever go through there, still the same. And I was with John. John's got the bucket of paste and we'd, we're going to this underpass and there's this really great sleeper in the middle of the road blocking off the inside lane. So I've swerved over, just missed that. Next time was another big sleeper. I didn't miss that one. We hit that one smack on. The Mini rolled straight over and landed back on his boots. Um, and I got out of the, the car and I ended up with a broken right ankle. And John's staggering about... With all this stuff all over him, you know, and he's going, my brains, my brains are coming out. And we go, no, John, John, it's just wallpaper paste, you know what I mean? Because the... But when we spun, this bucket of God, it got absolutely
0: everywhere. That
1: was one accident, yeah. You know.
0: <laughs> well, there are others. We'll come back to them. The other thing, I mean, young kids obviously have nicknames for each other as well. So can we talk through some of these? So am I right in thinking, so Pube started out as a nickname for Brooksy. Yeah. And then he you had short curly hair. yeah. yeah but did it not then... Tufty said it then moved to you. Yeah, then I don't you know why. you got rid of it quickly.
1: I don't know why I got... I think it was just... Somebody thought this is a good name, but, uh, Steve didn't want it. I don't, I didn't want it. So it, yeah, it soon got dropped. It was, yeah. yeah. But,
0: you, but you went on to another nickname. Tell me about the next nickname.
1: Oh, blind boy. Well, yeah, by that time, I think we'd, we'd been signed and the crew gave us all nicknames. So I was blind boy because I had a dark, I had dark glasses on when I was, you know, doing the shows. And some people actually did think that I was blind, you know, that where does he keep his white stick then? How does he get onto the stage and you know, all that sort of, um, Paul was called saddlebags because he had—he always had his, his cardigan with his pockets full of fags and lighter, so he looked like he had saddlebags on the side of him um bruce had the nickname of shower unit It wasn't a very good nickname we were staying in a particular hotel and it was one of them cheap it was so cheap the hotel you had to put your own shower together in the middle of the room on in the corner and it was you know you had to fold this bit out and make sure this was slotted in there and what have you uh and then the shower didn't turn on so he destroyed it he said i can't get thing to work and uh and it literally just smashed it up so yeah, but so that's how he so he got. But again, that, that nickname didn't last for very long. I mean, it was just the. Well, crew. he moved on to
0: Shirley. I think was his nickname. Shirley. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now we have to talk about the suits as well, because Ann Weller talks about having to constantly wash these suits that kept shrinking. And and it's funny when you, I mean, we've got an image of the jam behind us. You think of the iconic suits as being the jam, but actually. Telling us 78, those suits are gone and, in, and you're each into your own kind of clothes, your own look, aren't you?
1: Yeah, really from the very early days, we thought that we wanted to be noticed so we'd all dress the same. There was a trial period when we had white satin jackets, black shirts, white kipper ties. Those kipper ties are special, weren't they? <laughs> oh, I mean, we hated it. It didn't really work. Uh, so we dropped that and then we thought, right, we'll do what the Beatles did, we'll wear black suits. So we went to Hepworth's and got ourselves a suit each, um, you know, tie, slim tie this is a bit better. This is, you know, more like, say, feel-goods or something like that. We felt a bit more rock and roll then. But I do remember we just had the one suit each. So when we did the first tour of the States, I think we did 16 shows in something like 11 days. Two shows a night, two nights in New York. We started in Los Angeles, did the same thing there. So four shows in two days, San Francisco, Boston, New York. And by the time we got to New York, uh, I'll tell you, these suits... They could have done the show on their own. They really could. Do you know what I mean? Because they never dried out. They were just soaking. You just put them on. You think, oh, I don't want to wear this suit anymore. So, yeah, I mean, they're probably still out there touring somewhere, these suits. I don't, I've got no idea.
0: I don't know. One of the jam tribute acts, you're right. The, um, yeah. There's a great bit in the documentary where the the video camera is behind you and we're looking at you on the drums. And we see a, a sea of faces, some of which probably are here today. That's such a great position because you're kind of up on a riser. You're kind of literally looking down on people. (laughs) Absolutely. I've got my own
1: seat. I've got my own
0: area. Yeah, And it looks like, I mean, it's massively comfortable, obviously, but there's a real athleticism to being a drummer, isn't there? This is... I mean, and look at, and particularly how you play, Christ. I mean, it's hard work, isn't it? It is hard work. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, it kept me fit for, for a lot of time, a lot of years. It's more than just, just physical. I mean, you've got to keep your mind on the game as well. So it, yeah, it was, you just don't think about that. You just, just get into the moment. And I was talking to somebody earlier about, you know, drumming and, and what have you. And you really only think about that one second. So you know what you've done. And you, you want to think, right, what's the next thing you're doing? And it's just that one second slot. So you come off stage and it's like you don't realize that you've done an hour and a half. Because as far as you're concerned, you're still in this one second. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the weirdest of feeling. It's you walk on stage and then whoosh, and you come off and you think, what was that? You know, because you don't think of it like you're sitting back and listening to it all. You're just totally in that moment for the whole of the show so it's and you just get on with it and because of the intensity of the show as well it's it's almost just not there's no time involved in it at all well there are no breaks it's all are you so every time you finish a song you're bosh straight straight into the into the the next one i mean paul didn't like to do a lot of talking i don't know what he's like these days but he didn't like to do a lot of talking in between numbers you know it was kept to an absolute minimum we had a set list and we always felt that people were here to listen to the music not listening to somebody talking not like these days eh? Do you know what <laughs> I mean?
0: but they pay money um, to hear people talk now look at them <laughs>
1: um so yeah we just kept next song next song next song so it was fairly full on anybody who went to the shows i
0: don't think we let the pressure off at all it certainly wasn't boring but when you think about athleticism if you think of like the top athletes in the world today what they didn't have was a touring drinking culture yeah. and a lot of the time there was a lot of hangovers, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean the touring doesn't kill you, it's the partying that does it. Um, we experimented
1: with that a lot and I can tell you that that was definitely the case. I mean it was the only time you had that to yourself at the, at the end of the day. I didn't drink all day long because I don't know if anybody's tried to play drums when you're drunk. Forget it. It just can't be done. You know, Apparently you can play guitar and bass with, 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 with being reasonably tipsy but I just couldn't do it. So I used to stay sober all day long. So yeah, at the end of the day, you can, you, you're usually ensconced in some hotel and you can really just sort of, huh, it's cheek for me to say so. Well, I let my hair down, you know. And so there, yeah, there was a lot of, it was the only thing that we really felt that was our little time. And obviously drinking, you get a drink anywhere. So yeah, we did
0: quite a lot of that. Were you part of the card tables? Did you play the cards with John Weller and Kenny and all that lot? No, I couldn't afford it. Um, I didn't have wads of cash to do
1: that sort of thing with. I'm not really a gambler. I'm no good at it for a
0: start and I've never really liked the idea of it. Um, So no, I used to stay clear of all that. There's a chap I really want to talk about. So we mentioned John Weller, Kenny Wheeler, obviously, you know, an absolute legend, but there's this other chap Dicky Bell. Oh yeah. Tell me about Dickie Bell. Well where do you want to start? <laughs> so what, what was I mean. his role? Was he he was he a He was their Europe... tour manager. He was a tour manager. Dicky
1: made sure that we got the flights that necessary, that the transport was right, the venue was right. He did most of the groundwork on the day to day running of a tour. Uh, and he was absolutely brilliant at it. Before he came to work for us, he was working with Iron Maiden, so he done the the, the world tours and the tours of, us, of the states. Yeah, I got on like a house on fire with him. Uh, he was, yeah, he was terrible. <laughs> but, well, there are times when he's not so good at looking after you, though. <laughs> no, I led him astray, obviously. <laughs> huh. We used to be given. Uh, I think Bruce used to have two bottles of Bacardi on every show. Paul would get two bottles of vodka. I'd have two bottles of red wine. Uh, which was Bull's Blood, which is my favourite tipple. Recommended by Dickie Bell, actually. But you can't... Well, you can uh, drink two bottles a day. <laughs> <laughs> but not have a liver. <laughs> but I, would t- I was taking a rest, so I just put it in the cupboard, and I ended up with about 14 bottles in, in the cupboard. We came home from somewhere, and we were going to go to the Pink Pop Festival, I think, the next day. So Dickie said, well, look, he'd stay with around my house and uh, we'll just get in a cab the next morning. We'll go to Heathrow, we'll get in on a flight. I think it was Belgium we were flying to. A day early for the, luckily it was a day early for the Pink Pop Festival. But when we got back to my place, we opened up the cupboard. He's gone, oh, look, you've got 14 bottles of red wine here. <laughs> so we drank the lot. And um, my, my missus come downstairs in the morning to go to work and me and Dickie are still on the floor finishing off the last bottle as the taxis turned up to take us to the airport we missed the flight so we spent another two hours in the bar there Uh, then we got to wherever we were going the pink pop festival and by this time we were fighting me and dickie were having a fight in front of the kinks who were playing and um i think somebody went and said to to John, your tour manager and drummer have arrived, you know. So, uh, and the next day was just, I couldn't remember the next day if I wanted to. Um,
0: but it was his fault, you know what I mean? I'll blame him for that. Blame Dickie, bless him. Yeah. Um, there, and one other character we should mention um, before we talk about um, what's next for you, and and let's talk about 1982. Um, let's talk about Vic Coppersmith Heaven, because this guy, I think one of the things when you listen to the jam records is the way you were able to capture that live sound on record. And a lot of that's down to the production as well as anything else. Yeah, well, the band had something to do with it as well. Well, I I think they were involved. I do believe so. You're right. Well, we I mean, Vic was great.
1: I mean, um, we tried to record as much as possible live in the studio because that's what we were. We were a live band. That's the way we were used to sort of putting things together. So we'd get the backing tracks down. I can't think of any, maybe one or two tracks where the drums were done piecemeal. If you're not know a I moment, mean. mm. I think it was all done in, in one take. And so therefore, then once the drums are down, maybe the bass will stay. And then you start putting on things like, you know, guitars and backing vocals and maybe some percussion and all that sort of thing. Um, but to sort of keep the essence of of what the song was about as much as possible it was recorded live in the studio which gives it an edge which is great it's a great way of working the only thing that i regret about that is i wish sometimes we'd have taken some of the songs out on the road before we did the recordings because we would have ironed out a few things because the recordings always sound a lot better on stuff that We'd routined a bit did, more, yeah, right. got rid of some of the rubbishy bits and what have you, rather than trying it out in the studio, which, you know, I mean, like the first album in the city was pretty much so well routined. We just went in and did the whole thing almost virtually live in the studio. I mean, it sounds like it as well, but we had been rehearsing for that album for about five years. So, um, it does have that real edge. It's a fantastic sort of slot of about what the band were like because it was, it really showed us you know, in the recordings, what we were like to go and see live at that time. Albums that came after, more so with Modern World maybe, um, started to get a bit more produced. But I think because Vic Smith was such a great producer to work with, he kept a sort of live vibe about it, even though he slicked it up as far as the recording was concerned. I mean, it was a learning curve for us as well, you know, to, to, to actually go into a studio and there is an art about how you go about doing this. It's difficult for a band just to sort of walk in day one and start making great records. You know, I mean, it it, it, it's, it is an art that you have to learn. And Vic was, was brilliant in um, sort of helping us through that. It's, I mean, it's amazing you got anything done, though, because wasn't he on the phone the entire time as well? He was, yeah, bloody thing. He was always on the phone to somebody or other. Yeah, I don't know whether...
0: Yeah, he probably just wanted to get out of the room for 10 <laughs> minutes. And so. um, now, look, Brighton obviously has big special memories, good or bad, I don't know how you see them, but for so many fans and for the band this december december the 11th marks 40 years since that last gig of the jam how many of you were here for that show. <laughs> rick's put his hand up <laughs> thank goodness how much can you remember um i mean the good thing is we, there's there's a new book on the way 1982 which is looking back at that final year and the whole year so not just the moment of which you found out that this nice. was going to be the be- end of the band the end of your livelihood at that point but it takes you through all those emotions, but also the making of the gift. So tell us about that. Why did you want to revisit 1982?
1: I didn't really initially. I, um, the publisher who I did my autobiography with, they said, you know, we want to do a, because it's 40 years, we want to do a book. And they had these set of photos taken from that time. And they sort of presented it. Well, why don't we do a book about just 1982? Because the inside story has never really been told. There's a lot of stuff, you know, from the outside, people who saw the band at the last show, blah, 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 blah. But how we got to where we did at the beginning of 1982 and how we ended up I found it particularly difficult, actually, to cast my mind back and to think, well, what was actually going on at that time You know, with the band? I mean, I remember starting the year off, as I'm sure all three of us did, with this great optimism about what we were going to do and touring-wise because by that time, everything was laid out in front of us for six months to come. It started off really, really well. And to get that sort of announcement from Paul that he'd, he wanted to get off the treadmill of being in a band and et cetera, et cetera, was a real uh, real shock. Um, yeah, what could possibly go wrong? You know what I mean? We thought about, and we had talked about how bands had fallen by the wayside because they weren't selling. They'd fallen out with each other. One of them had died,
0: maybe. But the, none of these things had happened to us. You know, and you, were, we, and you were right on top. I mean, this is number one single after single after single. Yeah. Number one album. Yep, yeah, that's right. It just, um,
1: Paul was very much on his own overthinking this was a good idea. Uh, nobody... I mean, we still, myself and Bruce still felt that we had plenty of stuff in us. You know, there was new things that we we were thinking of doing musically, you know, and we just got to the point where we could have been thinking about, you know, maybe taking control of it and saying, right, we'll dictate how and when we go on tour and when we do these recordings. Because up until that point, the record company said, right, new single needed, by this date, you've got to therefore promote it. You've got a new album to put, take it out. So there was all this pressure that was coming on and uh, it almost seemed relentless. And I think up until that point, we just, well, like I mentioned
0: earlier, I think we just took it. We just said, yeah. We're, we're it didn't occur to you to try and put the, put your foot on the brake. Didn't and... occur to anybody,
1: no. Nope. Um, and I think that should have been addressed really, but it wasn't. The far as the management was concerned, it didn't, uh, didn't come on the horizon. Polydor, who were pretty much calling the shots in a lot of ways. They were quite happy. More products, more success, more touring, more product, please. It's like one of those sort of, mm. you know, wheels. And he, I, I could see exactly where Paul was was saying that he, he wanted to get off this thing. But it seemed like a very permanent solution to
0: a temporary problem. When you spend time looking back on that year, as you have done for this book then, were there elements of it where you kind of go, do you know what, I get it? Because now oh, that, totally, that legacy is is there forever right that's never going to be destroyed
1: but it's it still doesn't it still doesn't add up why paul decided to pull out when he did it just didn't make sense you know all the reasoning didn't make sense uh bruce suggested to him well let's take a year out let's stop Literally, go and do whatever you want. You know, you can go off, do your solo things or go and put your feet up on a beach somewhere for a year or whatever. Do you know what I mean, uh, it just seemed so ridiculous to throw the towel in after all the hard work that we'd done to get there, to just simply just throw the baby out with the bathwater. It just seemed silly. Um The band meant a huge amount, and we knew that at the time, to our fans, not only to us as, you know, members of this of this musical trio but to everybody um we didn't care too much about the record company because you know though <laughs> you know they were a necessity not necessarily yeah. you know what I'm saying but to to everything that we we'd done we'd worked so hard to achieve this and it was the goal uh was that we we wanted to get for ages and ages and to sort of all of a sudden say right we're going to just chuck
0: that away now um just didn't seem right what do you do in that scenario then? So there's something that's I mean it's completely out of your hands. You obviously try to have a bit of a hey, this we could do this, let's try this, whatever, but mm. at the end of the day the decision's made and you've got no control over it. And I I had that with a girlfriend once. It was it was devastating. Oh, tell you me know, about you it. get dumped, you know what it's like, you get dumped, you know, you don't want to leave, but you have to because she's not interested anymore. We've all been there, right? Oh. <laughs> He's not. i have been there. <laughs> <laughs> On multiple occasions, probably. No but there's, I... but there's nothing you can do about it,
1: right? No, I know, exactly. I mean we well, that's exactly how we felt. We just thought Paul would change his mind. I personally thought that, you know, because the gigs were still great. We were still selling out shows and the reception we were getting was still fantastic. People still loved to come and see us play. It was all going really, really well. The record company were happy. So we, we quite in a very gentlemanly fashion decided how we were going to go about the rest of the year for the commitments we already had on contracted for, etc., How are we going to get through this and work it together? It was almost like the elephant in the room. After the day that Paul said he was going to leave, it was never mentioned again. Really? Nobody said anything about it, really. We didn't talk about it. We just had this work in front of us, and we got on and did it. So we had another album to give to Polydor. That wasn't going to be a studio album. Um, so that was why Dig the New Breed was released was because it was a live album. It got us out of the contract with, with Polydor. We had singles that were already recorded that we could release. Um, and we just went about it in, like I say, in a very gentlemanly fashion. We, we did the shows. We did the tour. And, uh, I mean, we sh- looking back on it, we could have done a world tour to finish yeah. off, but it would have probably gone on for another year and a half, <laughs> you know, and I don't think that's quite what Paul had in mind. So, uh, it didn't. It just turned out to be a UK tour. Uh, that we are already planned to do and we have been doing for a few years just before the
0: Christmas we even had our Christmas party I was going to say this so the Christmas party came after that final yeah game, right? we
1: I mean how stupid is that that we even actually had the jam Christmas party after the end of the tour I don't know when was that on something like the 19th of December and it was the the strangest Christmas party i would ever been to <laughs> because um, there was like two parties going on in the same room you know everybody was either gravitating to over to Paul's side or everybody was gravitating to, to mine and Bruce's side and it was a it was a very sad
0: occasion actually when did it sink in because I would imagine it was in the media because you would have little breaks where you go off on holiday and do your own things and stuff like that so
1: it didn't really sink in with me not properly until the January of 1983 when you know cause Christmas would come along and everybody's you know etc and then Um, in January, I thought to myself, well, this is it. I've, for 10 years, I've had a very good reason to get out of bed every morning and I don't have a reason to get out of bed today. Uh, it was like that simple as that. You just, I personally felt that it was very much like being made redundant and you, you sort of stare at the wall for a bit and you, you think, well, what now? You know, um, it was almost an unbelievable sort of feeling. Um, but I mean, obviously, you soon have to pick yourself up and say, "Right, I still want to be in a band. I still want to do this." And so that's that's what I did, and um, I I put together a, a band, Time UK, and we we started to to, uh, to do some shows and get some songs together and what have you. But it was it was never the same. It was you know because we grew up between the three of us musically, and um, you know I think we knew each other inside out on stage. There was there was a magic about the whole thing we didn 't have to talk to each other about what was going to happen. We just knew what was going to happen when we were on stage and it and it it just did so it was a it was a very strange time
0: to find yourself in one thousand nine hundred and eighty three like that yeah I guess it 's that thing of like we all need some kind of purpose in our lives, and suddenly that 's been taken away from you for a second
1: yeah time. sure i mean I, I it was odd because we think. I couldn't justify it. I couldn't think, well, what what was it
0: that went wrong? Nothing went wrong. Why are we here? Do you know what I mean? It was it was very odd. I would ask you how you felt about the Style Council, but we've run out of time for that, so we're going to take some, take some Q&A questions from the fans. Actually, I do have one final question for you, for myself. So in the programme for the exhibition, there's a little interview, which was the final interview the jam did. And Bruce didn't rock up, it was the two of you, it was you and Paul. And there's a quote from you, You said, uh, well, the question was, could you ever foresee a time when the band might get back together? And you said that would be a mistake. The only reasons would be either trying to recapture a memory, which is impossible, or for the money. Both would be wrong. Is that how you feel right now? Well, I still—I would—I—I I don't know about the money.
1: I—I um, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's—it it's, is a very difficult one because once that flow has been broken you've got to think to yourself what's the reasons for actually getting back together if you're only going to do it just to revisit old songs that's a different thing and it's not really a reform is it it's not a you're just doing it to sort of put on a sort of revisiting gig if you like i mean i did do this later on when i did the gift yeah. i went and revisited the jam songs and i did that for about two years and it was great and i really you know because i thought to myself there's no way i'm going to go through the rest of my life without without playing those songs again because we had such a great time doing it um and i i really wish at times that Paul would be a little would have been at the time a bit sort of more light-hearted about it and said well let's let's we're not going to reform but we could have done Live Aid or we could have done all sorts of things, just come together and um, and done one or two shows together, not, not to reform, but just for the hell of it, just for the fun of it. But he wasn't going to entertain that at all, which I think is a real shame. I mean, there was an occasion when that could have been possible. I think when Bruce joined The Gift, I think then was a good opportunity because I said that to Bruce. I said, well, why don't you come along and do some numbers with The Gift? And he loved it absolutely enjoyed it you know because you could see it was like the old days come back again we did a few shows and that was really fantastic and we did we did approach paul about about that and so look just come along do two or three numbers we're not asking we're not we're not doing anything more than that just for the hell of it just for the fun i won't tell you what he said but it was it was um, (laughs) not in a church it was virtually it was just a no he just wasn't interested it was a real shame after all we'd we'd done and after all we'd achieved and you know, the, the, the great songs that, that Paul wrote during that period, I think it would have been lovely to have, uh, yeah. you know, to have, to have just,
0: you know. To I think play. also even just the fact that the three of you kind of getting together and just having a beer or whatever the tipple is these days, not the, not the, not the 14 bowls of red wine, um, but just <laughs> catching up. Because, I mean, that was a magical thing that you went through, really was.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't, I mean, it's, it, I think there's too much time gone by. And I, I think the reasons for actually doing it now have just gone. it's just a real shame the timing would have would have been everything but i just can't see it i just can't see it happening
0: hello let's take some questions from the lovely people here thank you uh thanks rick uh i was there as a 15 year old at your last gig and i'd like to ask you who taught you to play the drums
1: me (laughs) yeah just self-taught really i just watched other people and picked it up I did have one guy who showed me a few rudimentals but that's I
0: wouldn't say he taught me to play were you you learning at the bottom of the bed though? yeah so like there's a big hole in the bottom of your but well
1: it's a lot of it is muscle memory so you, it's just a matter of I mean you could just have a pair of sticks and just practice on anything you don't actually necessarily need a kit to, to get to that stage okay sorry first of all I just realised I called you Bruce not Rick so apologies for that <laughs> I've got about seven pints I'm pissed um <laughs> as a drummer, what is your favorite jam track jam song to play as a drummer all of them for, for different reasons I like I mean the, the... scrape away was a real bugger of a song to play but I loved it so because it's a very syncopated very odd thing Strange town I thought was a great energy sort of song I love things like I mean any you name any one of them ghosts. How can you play a song with the minimum amount of drums on there, and make it sound ghostly, you know? For that reason, I think that got close to, to succeeding. For all different reasons, you know, either the energy in it or if I, I felt proud of, of the way that it was recorded, Man in a Corner Shop, I thought was a great song to actually play to. It was just seemed natural and, and, and really fabulous to play live. There isn't a definitive answer. Okay, and finally, one thank you, because it's been fantastic being playing the jam, you're a fantastic group. And is there a favourite
0: track, regardless of being a drummer? You know, just a favourite jam track.
1: I mean, I love Absolute Beginners, because it was... Often people listen to that and they don't realise it's the gem. It was an exploration for us. Like a lot of these songs were. I think that was a good one to listen to. Star, I always thought was just lovely because it's it's open. It's really lots of space in there. Um when you listen to it on a on a good stereo. Five o'clock Hero, I think, was probably I'm quite proud of that song and everything that went into it it's a really difficult one because I, I mean I could talk all night about the songs you know Burn In Sky was, was a great song because it's quite complicated when you listen to all the different sections in it I think we were sort of ODing on how complicated we could make something A-bomb I mean I'm sorry but oh, I mean I the, really... drum, the drumming
0: on that my god yeah so good right next question most jam fans find it very difficult to put the, the order in jam albums in order of preference what from 6 to 1 what are your favourite <laughs> jam albums <laughs> Is he asking me what jam albums are favourite? From six to one. So if we were if we were counting down like we were on top of the parts.
1: I'm sorry, but again, I think they're all great. I love them all. And I might wake up one morning and think, do you know what, that Mod Cons is not bad. But the next day, it'll be setting suns or sound effects. I wouldn't like to put them in any particular order. I think one of the things that I think we should be very proud of is the fact that each album in itself is very different from any of the others. I think we definitely did that on purpose, not to become boring, not to just simply churn out the same as the last one. I mean, in a lot of ways, the record company were a little bit bemused when modern world wasn't anything like In the City. But we didn't feel that we could do another In the City. We we wanted to move on. We wanted to do something else. And if you look at all those albums, they're all different because of... The band was evolving, and you know, songwriting and playing arranging everything. And I don't think we stood still for any moment of time. So it didn't matter what came after, you know, the gift. It would have been different again. I'm sure it would have been. And so that I I find it impossible to sort of say this one's better than that one or whatever.
0: Uh, Question, yeah, the middle here. Um, What would you consider the easiest um, jam track to drum?
1: The easiest,
0: the easiest one. I'm trying to get a drummer in our band to play a jam <laughs> number. So I need the easiest one for a beginner. He's a, be-
1: for quite a, beginner. a beginner drummer. <laughs> I mean, I could throw you in the deep end and say Batman or something. but, uh, no, I don't know. Uh, probably star, I would think it's fairly straightforward.
0: Thank you. Alison from Eastbourne. Okay. Of all your dreams and achievements, have you got anything left on your bucket list?
1: No. <laughs> I, I'm sorry if that sounds smug or anything, but I mean, not that I can think of. I, I've always had itchy feet in that respect. And I do tend to get driven by the heart. So if I if I suddenly find that there is something that I want to do, I will just go ahead and do it. You know, I've done books, I've done management, I've had a recording studio. I've done Rodian as well, would you believe? Obviously, I've been in a band, I play drums, I do watercolours. I don't anymore because they're rubbish. <laughs> so it
0: wasn't much of a bucket list or that sort of thing. It was a passion for photography. In that final interview, you mentioned photography. That was what you were going to go off and do?
1: Yeah, because it was great. Thing to have on the road and take photographs of of things. I mean, yeah, I did have a passion for photography for a while because you could pick it up and put it down. It was something that I could carry around with. I still do uh, some photography, but I'm not. I wouldn't say I was any 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 good at it. Hi, my name's Lorraine, and I'm from Sheffield. Rick, thank you very much for your time today. It's been really interesting and lovely. As we're all jam fans here, I hope that you've had a good life after the shock in 1982, and maybe mm-hmm. things get better although you would never play again Um, I don't know about I don't know about never play I never say never I mean it's I mean I always enjoy these things it's not that I necessarily like listening to the sound of my own voice it's just I don't know I mean it might sound a bit silly but I, I am very proud of what the jam did and when I meet people like yourselves who are obviously very much into, into it as well. It's just really nice to think, well, there's people here that appreciate what we did as well. And I think that speaks more than sales or gold discs or, or anything like that. So, yeah, thanks.
0: A question in the middle here.
1: Hi, Rick. My name's Mark, and I'm, I live in Horsham. I was wondering whether you remember playing Leicester de Montfort Hall in the spring of 1982. You played two nights. The first night you played for around two and a half hours, I think. Right. The second night, Paul's amp kept repeatedly cutting out. He smashed his guitar up and walked off stage. Do you remember uh-huh. that? Yeah, vaguely. Yeah. And there was a near riot at the end where some of your gear got smashed up and people were were throwing seats from the balcony. Oh, well, yeah, but this was 82? 82. 82, around March 82. Yeah, it's very possible. I mean, it, that sort of thing did op- happen every now and again. I remember sitting, I don't know whether this, this was this that particular occasion, but I remember playing and there used to be roads, some of the road crew would be hiding behind the amps. Um, because that was the best place to, if anything went wrong, that's where they needed to be. And there was a guy working for us, who we, well, we always called him Ivy Benson, um, who used to look after a lot of the back line. And I remember him popping his head up behind the Voxes, Paul's Voxes, and having to quickly retreat back down again because there was a guitar coming at him. Um, and it, <laughs> he, he, he nearly died because I don't think Paul knew he was there, but this guitar came straight down. He was like, ah. but I saw what was going on, but I don't know whether anybody else did. So yeah, there was often mechanical failures, let's say that, uh, that failed seriously after that. You know, I mean, it's. Um, It is very frustrating when something like that happens and you're all fired up and Paul would literally just take it out on on one of his amps or something or the guitars. I mean, Dave Little was a guy looking after the guitars and they'd be all lined up backstage. So if any one of them, the Rickenbackers are really fragile. They're horrible things because they're semi-acoustic, really. So if you give them any sort of bash, you might as well throw it away because it was just damaged. So a lot of them did get trashed all the time uh, That wasn't unusual but i do vaguely remember that, that that there was some sort of fracas going on in one of the shows I and mean, we were always hurriedly taken backstage we didn't often see you know the outcome of everything that went
0: on out front but yeah those were the good old days weren't they really <laughs> <laughs> There's actually the neck of one of the guitars in the exhibition, isn't there? From the, one of the broken guitars. Have a look at that.
1: Hi, Eric. It's uh, John again from Horsham here. Just wondering, on a drumming point of view, what was your favourite kit? Was it the Hayman the uh, Yamaha, or any one of the Premier kits you hit? Hey, what was your favourite kit? I didn't like any of them actually. <laughs> um, what do you think I was hitting them for? You know, was, uh, the Premier's ones were good because they were free. Premier just gave me kits. That was quite good. I always hankered after owning a Ludwig kit, which I do now, which I think is just a, a fabulous drum kit, really fabulous. But I didn't never had one at the time. The Yamaha kit that I had for, for a very short time was a very good drum kit. It was too good. It used to resonate too much, and it wasn't very good for live work. So it used to feed back all the time as soon as you mic it up. So in a way, Premiere for all of their mistakes actually did make a very good live kit because it was robust it didn't break you know and it lasted yeah i suppose the the, back in the day the premier ones were the ones to have you could reliably take them on tour and not have to keep sending off for more bits and spares uh hello rick uh you know me it's richard leonard i wonder What, what are you doing now well at this particular moment um i've got another book coming out about nineteen eighty two, which so obviously I'll be promoting that for the end of this year.
0: I think he means by appearing on this podcast. Oh I see. (laughs) Yeah. I know what you're saying, but you know,
1: it's unfortunate you don't see many drummers do a do a you know a tour on their own,
0: so not a lot of call for it. Yeah. We'd have to suffer Phil Collins, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. 1982, December the 11th, that final gig in Brighton, hasn't yet been released as a proper album of that recording. No. There are rumours floating around that you're the only guy who has a copy of it, off the desk. Clean this up for us, Rick, will you?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think Polydor wanted to film it at, on the day, and uh, I think John said, well, look, I don't want don't to spend the money filming it. Um, so that never happened. So what I did was I, I set up my... I had one of the you know it was supposed to be portable video player, but it was about <laughs> this big, you know, and just set it up at the back and filmed it. Uh so the quality's rubbish, the sound is not particularly good, it can be enhanced. I do have a copy of it. I don't know whether it will actually ever see the light of day, really. Uh which would be a shame. Um, it's a shame that we it wasn't actually recorded properly at the time, you know, as as the last show, uh film and everything, it would have been it would have been fantastic. But
0: say Levy. Hey, look, we can all pop back to yours now to have a listen. Please give it up for the legend that is Rick Buckler! Cheers. Well, there you go. My thanks once again to Rick Buckler and the whole of the This Is The Modern World exhibition team. Much appreciated. Don't forget to share this episode on social media, retweet, chuck it on Facebook and Instagram. It all helps to spread the word. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can also buy me a virtual coffee. Just go to my website, Paulwellerfanpodcast.com and head to the store. People who have done that this week, Terry Vine said, love the Steve Pilgrim interview. Hope to see you Thursday in Islington. Cheers, Terry. Hope to see you, mate. Mike Vinton says, you were right. The exhibition was brilliant, as was the interview with Mick and Whitey. Cheers, Mike. Thanks for the coffee, man. Andy Tolcher, brilliant work, mate. Thank you. Bless you, sir. Thanks to Brian G. Mike Steer says, Dan, as I hike through the wilds of Canada's West Coast on my daily walks, you and your guests are on board with me as I listen to the podcast. You've done an incredible job of pulling great stories and memories for the guests that you've booked. Bless you, Mike. Love that. Alex McLaughlin, what are we going to do when you get the big one? You'll need to keep going somehow, mate. Still don't have an idea for series two. Kevin Smith, thank you for your coffee as well. All much appreciated. Don't forget wellerfanpodcast.com and just head to the store. You'll also find our exclusive merchandise there as well. T-shirts, tote bags, mobile covers, pin badges, the lot. If you fancy getting in touch, at wellerfanpod on Twitter, or just search for Paul Weller Fan Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Next up on the podcast, we hear from David Pottinger, a modernist from Middlesbrough who created the Move On Up blog a website for him to write about his passions of football, clothing, and music. David is a massive Jam and Weller fan. Plus, he got to interview Paul Weller as part of the About the Young Idea TV documentary. So hoping to get some tips from David as well. You'll love this one. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.